Hello and welcome to day three of the Harvey Weinstein trial on Filtered, a daily podcast where we bring you the evidence and witness testimony verbatim, just as it's spoken in court. So we bring you the most exciting parts, the most dramatic parts of the Harvey Weinstein trial using transcripts and voice actors. We reenact each day's testimony so you will hear what happened that day in court. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to leave a five-star rating and write us a comment. And already we want to thank the person who uh, told us that we are in fact pronouncing Harvey Weinstein's name Incorrectly. But we you know, there wasn't many Harvey Weinsteins or Weinsteins around uh, Bundoran or Oma well, when we were growing, we were growing up. up. So we have been, I'm uh, Anne McElhenney. Yes, and I'm Philip McAleer. And we're this is the Harvey Weinstein trial unfiltered. And we're um, going to get straight into the evidence um, that we heard today. Yes. Um, and a lot of, quite a few heated arguments actually today. Yes, and uh, quite a few celebrity, you know, there's a lot of, cele- there was a celebrity witness, there was a few celebrity walk-on parts, a few celebrity mentions. So the... And in fact, actually, you know, apparently Ellen Barkin was there yesterday. I, I certainly didn't spot her, but uh, we were told that. But today, yes. yeah, we had, we had Rosie Perez today. Yes, who, you know, she, she was a witness who almost didn't appear. The defense fought tooth and nail to keep her out. Um, but the prosecution argued, you know, really vociferously, the jury should hear her evidence. Her evidence was very dramatic uh, and not good for Weinstein. Uh, she gave evidence in the afternoon, but in the morning we heard from Dr. Barbara Zev. And Zev. some of you might recognize that name. So doc, Dr. Zev is a forensic psychiatrist um, and she um, famously gave evidence in the Bill Cosby case. Yes. So, uh, and I think I think we saw she's been given, it's kind of her career. Yeah, she's, she has a career. She's, they sort of, the defense sort of yeah, had, a little, had a little dig had at a little her, dig but at her. Like she was basically a, a, a witness for hire. Um, so she's a professor, by the way, in Temple University in, in Philadelphia. Um, and, and she was there to explain today uh, why, and this is important for the case, why uh, Weinstein's alleged victims would continue uh, to be in contact or even in relationships with the defendant, even though they had been raped or sexually assaulted by him. Uh, she was, in my opinion, I don't know about you, Anna, you know, not that conv- she was convincing. I'm not sure she uh, scored a lot of points, but yeah, we're act- going to hear some of those points today. Yes. But I think one of the things that struck me that really stuck stuck in my head was if you've got a, pro- a professor of psychiatry and somebody who's also yeah touring the country um, with you know with these um, with this research basically that she's done. Interesting, and obviously the defense pointed that out that she actually hasn't published any papers. And yes. I mean, uh, you and I, we have a few friends who are psychiatrists, and um, they certainly have uh, published. Yeah, you know, are yeah, very that, that, well, that's true. Actually, you know, it's kind of a thing. We'll hear about that later. No, no published papers. It was kind of a shock when I heard that. Actually, it was like because you know she's a she's a big big fromage, and the, the, the fact that she hasn't published, she's read a lot of papers, but she hasn't published any. So. In my opinion, you know, actually, although her evidence really sums up the crux of this case, you know, uh, the prosecution talked at the beginning about hearing her truth and the defense said we should be focusing on the truth. And Dr. Ziv's evidence summed up this conundrum. She's claiming something that many people would find hard to accept, that a rape victim could write loving emails to a rapist or be in a relationship with her rapist, the defense is urging the jury after after an alleged uh, after after a rape that you would have this yeah. lengthy that so that was doc that's what doctors have you know her role basically in this case is that they you know they want her to come in and say that there's nothing unusual to see here basically yeah. 
excuse me, in people who have been uh, ra- alleged, yes. you know, raped by, by Harvey Weinstein, that they would then have Weinstein, that she, that they would then continue yes. to have like friendly relationships, r- friendly relationship with him for years afterwards. Yes. That that actually, so that was what, that's why that, she was on the that stand. That was her job to square that circle. Yeah, and but I think not having a published paper, I think does, it, yes. it, it, it takes a lot away from the strength yeah. of her testimony. And I the defence, the defence in return is our urging the jury to reject this academic theory and uh, to apply common sense to this verdict. So that that you know, it may have, her evidence definitely sums up the case. So and then at the end of the day, there was a ce- kind of celebrity walk-on witness, Kara uh, Young, a former New York model. She was a witness for a while. Um, Very famous for what now? Her Fam- major, you know, he's everywhere. Her major claim to fame is that in 1997 to 1999, she dated a little-known real estate developer called Mr. Donald Trump. Right. He, um, is, he literally is everywhere. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, we're three days into this trial and it's already, we got Donald Trump yeah, in there. Remember in the first day we had Bill Clinton? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. actually, just the to show you how much the mighty has fallen, uh, the defense uh, asked for a mistrial because the prosecution associated Harvey Weinstein with Bill Clinton. Oh yeah, that, that by by doing that, that it was defamatory. Basically, that it was <laughs> it, it's kind of extraordinary. It's kind of funny how far Bill Clinton has fallen. Um, so, so, so then, so she, 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 her evidence basically was that she was watching an Oscar party with uh, Annabella Sciorra. And uh, in 1994, she thought she was jittery. She noticed that she had cut herself, uh, you know, and it was a party in Gary Oldman's house. And uh, so it was a, a small walk on part of this former model, uh, you know, who, but who had uh, dated Donald Trump. The prosecution tried to claim that this kind of behavior by her, the jitteriness and all that could have been uh, Miss Giara's um, alcohol or Valium addiction withdrawal because she was, she admitted to having a drink problem and a, and a Valium problem. So, you know, there was an interesting mention also of the actress Rose McGowan, who, who claimed to be, who has claimed to be a Weinstein victim, given a lot of emotional interviews and press conferences about the movie producer. Uh, she today, a private investigator, gave evidence that been contacted by Weinstein's lawyer in August 2017, and Weinstein looking for investigations to people who may be cooperating with the journalist. And almost in passing, he added that Mr. Weinstein said he was being extorted by the actress Rose McGowan. Uh, although the the defense had initially objected to the witness being called, they made a lot of capital out of uh, Mr. Weinstein saying uh, spontaneously that he was being extorted, trying to plant an alternative motive for the allegations in the jury's mind. And before you know. we and before we get into you know hearing some of the testimony, just to remind everyone, you know, if somebody has just tuned in for the first time, to remind you what this trial is all about. And um, this is a case basically launched, which launched the Me Too movement. Movie producer Harvey Weinstein faces two charges of rape and one of a criminal sex act. He also faces two charges of predatory sexual assault, which carry a possible life sentence. So prosecutors are arguing that Weinstein displayed a pattern of predatory behavior, and they use the word predatory all the time. They'll be calling four of the witnesses who they say are also victims who will help prove a pattern of behaviour. But Weinstein is not facing charges connected to this behaviour. So again, as I said, we, we first of all heard this morning from Dr. Barbara the Ziv, yeah. uh, the professor from Temple University. Yeah. And as I said, there was this question about her um, her qualifications. Let's just hear, yeah, let's let's just just hear that. Um, let, let's, that let's exchange hear that, between, that exchange. between uh, Damon Chironis, uh, the, For defense, the defense. defense attorney for Mr. Weinstein, and Dr. Ziv. And don't forget, this is verbatim. actors acting what actually happened in court. This is verbatim. This dialogue is from the court. So let's hear it. 
a few more questions about your qualifications. You talked about the literature involved in these types of situations, uh, sexual assault, and you are very familiar with that literature. Yes. Did you ever author any literature in the area of sexual assault victims or deal with sexual assault? Have I published any papers? No. An academic yeah. witness for hire that hasn't published any papers. It's I- unusual. And I, well, I think it's a lot more than unusual, actually, because I think, you know, you, you know um, we have a few fa- family members in the medical profession yes. ourselves. And, you know, we know that having published papers, it's a thing. And by the way, it's actually frowned upon, by the way, it's yes. certainly in Ireland, in England. It's very frowned upon if you, upon haven't, published if you haven't published. And I think it's even bizarre, by the way, she's actually a professor yes. at Temple University and hasn't published. So, uh, you know, again, I thought that was very odd. Yes. So we're going on to the next section here, yeah, Phelan, which is where, yeah. where, where doctors live gets to kind of talk about her research, inverted commas research, because obviously it hasn't been published. Um, And um, really what her research is about is about rape myths, which are things like, you know, apparently that, you know, that people, the belief that that rape is carried out mostly by strangers. And I think... Well, well, in fact, you know, most rapes are carried out by by people 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 known to the victim. Which I think we all kind of knew that, right? I'm not sure it's a rape myth anymore. Like, I'm not even sure if there's ever a rape myth, but, you know, I thought that was well... I mean, it's well known now, but I mean, she said it's a rape myth. But I think what she's really famous for, and the reason that she's been pulled into this trial particularly, is that she, and she's going to explain that, we're going to hear that in a moment, is why rape victims may not tell anyone about the attack and maintain communications with their attackers afterwards. Yes, because it's and a... friendly communications. Yes, because obviously, that, that is a big sticking point with this 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 case, is that many of these uh, alleged victims maintained... Were extremely friendly. I mean, as we... Were maintained we, romantic exactly, connections, and some as, of them. So, some of them romantic connections, and I think, as we said on the very first day, you know, we'd heard from... Um, the defence when they were laying out their, you know, the, what, what we're going to be hearing over the next weeks. Um, you know, in one case, one of the accusers, um, you know, in fact, after the rape, wanted to introduce her mother to Harvey Weinstein. You know, quite unusual stuff, yes. really, you would have thought. So this is why we're going to hear Dr. Yes. Viz. So let's hear this now. Remember, this is actors doing this verbatim. Yes. And we're going to hear Did Dr. Viz tell... Um, do- do- Dr. Ziv. Dr. Ziv, excuse me, I don't yes. know if... Uh, Dr. Ziv, tell... Uh, the court um, about rape myths. Let's hear that. Another common rape myth is that victims of sexual assault resist their assailants. This is not true. The vast majority, actually, I need to be clear. When we're talking about rape myth, there are rape myths that apply to different populations. The rape myths that apply to children are different than adult females, and they are different than those that apply to males. So these are rape myths specific to adult females who have been sexually assaulted by a male. So it is also very commonly believed and wrong that victims of sexual assault resist their assailants. Only between 20 and 40% of individuals in sexual assault that occurs in that rare circumstances of an individual who is being raped by a stranger, and some of the research includes being raped by more than one individual at a time. So these are people who are confronted with a stereotypic person in the dark alley and possibly a weapon. So even in those circumstances, most women, only between 20 and 40% of women, shout out, scream, yelling. Very few people run and, and physically resist other than struggling. It is also pretty rare and the most common type of physical resistance demonstrated by men, women, when faced with a stranger rape is kicking. So this idea that women respond to sexual assault by verbal screaming, yelling, hitting, punching, biting, although that happens, it is rare. The next myth, Doctor. Another common misconception is victim of sexual assault promptly reports the assault. This is 
absolutely untrue. The vast majority of individuals who are sexually assaulted do not report promptly. The time, it can range from days to weeks to months to years to report a sexual assault to never. It is, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, it is the most underreported crime. Does this mean report at all versus report to the authorities? Well, so there are two levels. One is reporting to law enforcement. That is, so as you go up the ladder of intensity, it becomes less and less common. So many individuals who are sexually assaulted will tell somebody, a friend, a parent, not everybody, but many. Very few people then will report to a doctor or a counselor or a spiritual advisor. And then the next level up is to law enforcement, and even fewer report to law enforcement. Next myth. Another very common misconception is victim of sexual assaults don't have contact with the perpetrator following the sexual assault. It is extremely common. In fact, it is the norm for individuals who have been sexually assaulted, especially by somebody they know, to have subsequent contact with the individual. Now, that contact can range from having text messages or email exchanges with them to continuing in a relationship with them or to developing a relationship with them even if one did not exist before the sexual assault. When we talk about children, we talk about the carrot and the stick, or I do, in terms of how perpetrators gain compliance. The stick aspect of why do women continue to have contact with the perpetrator include the fact that as devastating sexual assault is, most individuals think, okay, I can put it behind me, I can move on with my life, I'm just going to put it in a box and forget what happened. I don't want it to get worse, I don't want this individual who had sexually assaulted me to ruin my reputation, ruin my friendships, put my job in jeopardy. I can handle this physical trauma, but I... God forbid they ruin the rest of my life, make it impossible for me to go on. Add to that the fact that perpetrators of sexual assault often not only have overpowered an individual... Objection. Overruled. Not only have they overpowered a woman physically, showing that they can dominate their body, often there are threats, either implied or explicitly said to an individual... If you tell anybody this, I'll ruin your reputation. If you tell anybody this, nobody's going to believe you. Perpetrators say that to kids. They also say that to adults. I'll bring you down. I'll make sure that you pay for it. So there is both sometimes an implied threat, sometimes an explicit threat, and always a worry on the part of the victim that the individual, the perpetrator, can invade other aspects of their life and ruin their life even more profoundly than being sexually assaulted. Now, on the flip side of that is the desire. Remember, 85% of sexual assault is perpetrated by somebody known to the offender. We all know individuals who are in a situation of domestic abuse. Those women do not always leave. In fact, they frequently do not leave, and they stay for a long period of time. And they may think about it, but they don't do it. Why is that? Because they have a connection to the individual. You often hear women who have been sexually assaulted say they feel like damaged goods. They feel like, I'm used goods anyway, why not? 
sometimes women go and have subsequent contact with the perpetrator because they cannot really believe this happened to them. They want some explanation about how they can live with this, how they can hold on to this relationship or image they had of this person that they knew, and they are hoping this is just an aberration. You hear that all the time. That they go back thinking, I can just bring this back to baseline. I can just pretend this whole thing never happened, and I can continue to have a relationship with this person, and we can move on. You know, there are other reasons, too. The individual, none of us, just one quality, the individual may have other positive qualities, and the victim will say, you know what? Yes, he did this horrible thing, but look at all these other good things he's done. So all those things go into play in terms of subsequent contact. It is the normal, and often what happens, honestly, is if women go back to have contact with the perpetrator, which they almost always do, and a lot of times they do, believing, okay, this is outside the normal, but we can go back to square one, and sometimes what happens is that a second sexual assault occurs. It might not occur at the first meeting, but it might occur six months later, a year or two years later, which is each more devastating for that person because one of the things I think we'll talk about, the first response of women sexually assaulted is to blame themselves. It is another part of the rape myth. You have done something to bring this on you. That is not true, but people do feel that way. And then when they go back and if they're sexually assaulted again, they think in spades, oh my God, I was an idiot. What was I thinking? Without knowing their behavior is actually entirely expected. So then in what was a very good result for the prosecution, Dr. Viv, apparently, you know, spontaneously brought up ways that people might try and stop um, a sexual assault by saying, you know, I have my period or, you know, that um, that after um, a rape, that people might cut themselves. And, you know, that self-harming behavior, self-harming behavior mm. which, you know, seemed uh, very bizarre because it kind of completely perfectly mirrored what uh, Annabella Sciorra had said yesterday in court, where she said that after the rape um, that, uh, that she had cut herself um, and also that you know, she had claimed at some stage, one of the victims had claimed at some stage that they, that they, you know, had said, I'm on my period and yeah. this was a way of getting him to stop. Yeah. So, you know, that was... Well, however, Dr. Ziv denied uh, knowing... Denies knowing anything about, about any the of, the, of, of, of any part of the case. Well, so. let's, but let's hear, uh, give that evidence to the prosecutor, uh, uh, Joan Luzzi Orban. Orban. Uh, this is a, an exchange between them. And again, it's actors uh, reading the verbatim dialogue. And we w- would point out that, you know, there's graphic details in, in many of these exchanges, uh, uh, but uh, so exercise some discretion. Lastly, doctor, one can determine a myth being, one can determine whether somebody has been raped by their behavior? All right. There have been lots of uh, studies about victim response before, during, and after sexual assault. And almost everything that I have told you about the fact women don't typically scream, engage in physical aggression towards their perpetrator, but it goes beyond that. Studies have shown that individuals in the middle of sexual assault do everything from comply 
to give a false statement to saying, you know, no, I've got my period or I have a sexually transmitted disease to responding reflectively. I have individuals who are sexually assaulted by someone they know. It is a disorienting experience, and so they may respond. Their emotional shape memory suppression may not reveal they are horrified or grossed out, whatever. They may tell you that that is their internal experience, but that is not what is reflected. The aftermath of the sexual assault behavior is also variable. There are over a hundred behaviors of individuals who have been raped by strangers that have been identified. So individuals may retreat. They may, in the aftermath of a sexual assault, engage in promiscuity, self-injury, just behavior like cutting, burning themselves, drink, they may use drugs, they may become outgoing, they may become withdrawn. There are a whole range of behaviors, none of which tells you whether a sexual assault occurred or not. So yes, uh, you know, coincidental details there. Um, She did face tough questioning from defense attorney about that. She denied it. So, uh, you know, in fact, uh, Dr. Ziv said she had never read any articles at all about the Harvey Weinstein case, which actually was one of the more un- unbelievable parts of her evidence. That yeah. she, you know, it's not that she stopped reading when she was given evidence or she's never read any article anywhere and about, it's kind of, about the Harvey Weinstein it's case. So that's, I have to say, it does stretch credibility given, I, I mean, I got, just today I was just like flicking through like the New York Times, the New York Times, you know, like seven articles, whatever, yeah. you know, it's huge, it's everywhere. Like yes. it's, I mean, I, I, you know, we're in the court every day and we could see like the, you know, there is this like, you know, that's why we're there. That's why we're there at five o'clock yeah. in the morning is because like there's, you know, 70, 70 journalists in the room, but then there's what another 200 outside yeah, the court. Yeah. So, I'm talking at five o'clock this morning. Uh, I'm sure everyone out there is very concerned about our health and well-being. And we want to report the weather in New York has improved. improved. Yes, and, yes uh, it has improved. It's not quite as uh, life-threatening uh, being there uh, for Four, but we will talk. But we, we haven't got time today. But we will talk another day about how, ways to keep warm in the yes. cold because we're actually getting super clever about it, and people are kind of bonding about yes. ways to keep warm. But um, so, go back to Doctor Ziv. So Doctor Ziv then faced some pointed questions from Damon Sharonis, uh, Harvey Weinstein's defense lawyer. One of them. Interestingly, this was the first day the judge had a significant part in the trial, and he was quite snippy. As uh, Judge James Burke was quite snippy with both the defense questioning, um, you know, of Doctor Ziv. He'd been quiet in court up to then, actually. And funny, I had thought, you know, seeing him on the opening day of the trial, you know, back when this opened in January 6th and then during jury selection and bail hearings. I mean, this judge threatened to put Weinstein in in jail for having a mobile phone. So I thought he was going to become a real character in the trial. He's been very quiet up to now. But today he came out on his own. He was leaning forward very, remember that, very interestingly, sort of aggressively intervening in questions uh, during uh, during Dr. Ziv's testimony. So, But let's hear now, um, we'll hear the um, the defense uh, yeah. team led by Damon Sharonis today trying, um, trying to basically trying to demolish Dr. Ziv by asking her about, mem- about memory and particularly um, this thing that people do called relabeling, where people relabel in events. So something happens to you and then afterwards you decide to relabel it. Um, in other words, because you regret it, and you then decide, you know, retrospectively, um, you know, I'm going to put a new, a new, na- a new name on this. So let's hear that exchange. And again, remember, these are actors with the actual words that were used in the trial today. You testified about memory, Doctor Ziv. 
Yes. And how memory, uh, I believe in one of your slides, you said memory can be a, uh, I don't want to misquote you. It, it's complicated, right? That, that was in one of the slides. Yes. And you said that memory of traumatic events is different than memory for other events. Yes. Now, along the lines of memory, are you familiar in the literature with the concept of relabeling? Yes. And what I mean by relabeling is after a sexual encounter, the individuals can relabel that encounter as something else. No. First of all, you're making an inference. Relabeling is when you experience something and over time it you sort it into a different bucket in your memory. Well, you gave an opinion or an example of a victim of sexual assault in your paperwork who may be sexually assaulted but not realize it at the time was it was sexual assault for certain reasons, right? Well, they might not realize that it constituted a legal sexual assault, a rape. That doesn't mean that they didn't know what happened to them was not was against their will, but it means that they didn't know that I mean people the individuals who are victims of sexual assault live in the same community that we all live in. And it's not uncommon for individuals to believe that you so you can rape only refers to stranger rape. So a lot of people adhere to that. And so it doesn't mean that they don't know they didn't want to have sex or it doesn't mean that they didn't know that they were assaulted. It just means that they don't know that this is legally an issue. Do you think of, doctor, can I have, would you agree that an individual could reinterpret after the fact things they had done that they regret? Yes. Even a sexual relationship? They can, sure. You have heard of the term consensual unwanted sex, haven't you? I have heard of it. I think it is the most ridiculous concept, and it is not a consent that is accepted in any field that I know of. Let me ask you this, Dr. Ziv. Can you think of a scenario where an individual, a man or a woman, would have sex for a reason other than love or attraction? Yes, I talk about that in my report. You can have sex just because you want to have sex. You can have sex because it is an exchange, prostitution, or it is an exchange for something else, sure. But those parameters are set up beforehand. There is an expectation that you have agreed to this interchange. And would you agree that it's been reported on that individuals who are involved in transactional sex, although consensual, may have regrets about that? <laughs> People can have regret about anything. Sure, I understand that. Specifically, a situation where two individuals have sex and one of the individuals thinks that it's shameful. They could have regret about that over the years, correct? No, I don't think that that is a common experience. Of course, anything is possible, but it certainly isn't common. And then they could relabel a consensual encounter as non-consensual years later because of the regret and shame. Anything is possible. It's not usual. So most of the morning was, was dominated by, by Dr. Ziv's testimony, actually. And uh, Mr. Shonis then again scored some more points Um because he raised the unfortunate uh, situation where Dr. Ziv had given evidence in a previous court hearing for the defense in a case where a school called Virginia Wesleyan was being sued after a student claimed she'd been raped. Mr. Shonis read Dr. Ziv's testimony, which seemed to imply that uh, she summarized it was a false rape allegation because the victim had not struggled and, and fought back. Mr. Shronis said this undermined her evidence in the Weinstein case because she'd said, you know, 
oh, so many, as you heard earlier, so many victims don't, most victims don't struggle and fight back uh, because of the nature of rape. So, so she, in one case, she says, not fighting back is a sign that it's a false rape claim. But now she's saying, no, this is actual proof that it did. Yeah, so this is very, happen. yeah, so this is kind of a, a, you know, a classic, you know, discovering her in a, in, in a pretty massive contradiction stage. And in fact, it got so testy between the two of them, but Judge Burke uh, eventually lost his patience and tried to sort of shut them down. Let's hear that. And in that case, by the way, when you were hired by the defense, you didn't talk at all about rape myths, did you? I wasn't asked about rape myths. That's not what the point of the testimony was. Yes. We can agree, regardless of that testimony, that some individuals who are sexually assaulted will fight back. Yes. So if somebody says they fought back, that doesn't mean they are not telling the truth, does it? Correct. And individuals who false report regarding sexual assault may say they fought back, correct? Correct. You also talked a little bit about the delay in outcry. Yes. And when I say a delay in outcry, what I mean is a situation where an individual was sexually assaulted may not go to the police right away. Correct. And I agree 100% that that's accurate. Objection to Mr. Sharoni's opinion? Sustained. I don't quarrel with you on that. Not every individual who is sexually assaulted goes to the police right away. Objection. Resustained. This time you did meet me, though, right? Not everyone sexually assaulted goes to the police. Correct. And not everyone sexually assaulted outcries on a schedule, right? Correct. Okay. Some people who are sexually assaulted may wait a long time or never. Isn't that fair? Correct, yes. You would also agree that a false accuser may not report for a number of days or weeks, right? I don't know what you mean. Somebody who wasn't actually sexually assaulted may wait three months later to say they were sexually assaulted. From what? If there is no instant offense, if there is no sexual assault, so then what are you dating that from? Well, a situation where maybe there was a sexual encounter and three months later they say they were assaulted? It could. It could happen. It could. It could happen years later as well, right? It could. And if a woman is sexually assaulted and she reports it right away, it doesn't make her less credible, does it? No. And one of the issues regarding prompt outcry, and this sort of covers some of the issues you discussed, is that you don't think you should take anybody at their word for anything when there is an allegation of criminal behavior. Isn't that true? Yes. And you said that to CNN, didn't you? I don't recall. You said it, and you know it was published. I don't know if it was published, but I believe that. You also remember saying that the Me Too movement doesn't educate people about why perpetrators or victims behave the way they do. Yes. Did you also say, in a way they serve as, I think, sort of a shield behind which women and some men can sort of hide behind and not push the conversation forward? Yes. Did you also say it almost has become distorted to the point where if I say me too, then okay, then you just have to believe me too? Objection, judge. Overruled. You said that. Yes. You said that I think it does a disservice to everybody, to individuals who have been accused of sexual assault as well as victims of sexual assault. Yes. You talked a lot about memory. Was that a question? I think you know it was. Well, it depends. I have heard you do that before. I, I know you do that to lawyers when they ask questions. Objection. Objection, Judge. Sustained. Mr. Sharonis, if you persist in that, I will ask you to wrap it up. I apologize, Dr. Ziff. Do you think that if something happens closer in proximity and somebody reports it soon, 
the more accurate it's going to be. I think that you can say that about a lot of things. I think that that is, yes, I think that is generally true. Now, in other words, if something is happening, the closer in proximity somebody reports it, the more accurate it is going to be, correct? Correct. And if we are relying on something that happens a year and a half later or after all of this attention, is that reliable? You said something like that. Pardon me? Do you remember saying, if we are relying upon something that happens a year and a half later in a deposition or after all of this attention, is that reliable? Not really. Did you say that in relation to the Virginia case? Again, you're distorting what I said. The Virginia Wesleyan case was... So, is it going to be more reliable close in time to the event? Sure. For example, the woman that I told you 30 years ago remembered the door clicking. What she said about that night, about the core issues of that night, were almost identical to what she has said in real time 30 years before. What wasn't was what she had to eat. You know, irrelevant things. So is it probably more accurate, her account of those trivial things about, you know, what she ate that night? Or Yes, it probably is, but the central elements were the same. Okay. So, you know, it is true that if you're close in time to an event, your memory for irrelevant or extraneous details will be better, but that doesn't mean that your memory for a core traumatic experience is going to be much different. One of the things you referred to in what I just read to you was, if it happens a year and a half later, after all of this attention, is that reliable? Well, all of this attention refers to the fact that she changed her story about the core issues. So it started out with maybe something, something, it actually started out with her going the day following him and having sex with this guy, saying having brunch or whatever with her college friends, pointing him out and saying, you know, I had sex with him and he's ugly. And then that, over time, morphed into, I think I may have been sexually assaulted. It moved into, I believe, I was drugged and sexually assaulted, and then became, I was sexually assaulted, I was vaginally raped, I was anally raped, and I was, he forced me to give him oral sex. And then it became, I was incontinent of feces, and then it became, I was bleeding everywhere. So the core elements of the story were so wildly disparate that that's what made it not credible. Okay. And one of the claims in that case was that the young woman claimed she had PTSD, right? Yes. And you said that PTSD is easily faked, didn't you? Yes. And PTSD is easily faked? No, it's not easily faked in terms of having demonstrated symptoms. It is easily, you can easily endorse all of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. You can say, I have all of the, you can list the symptoms. So it's easily faked. Well, I wouldn't say that it is easily. You have to evaluate every case of post-traumatic stress disorder for malingering because it does rely upon self-report. So, I mean, is it easy to fake real symptoms of hypervigilance? No, not really. You are aware that in that case, other healthcare professionals diagnosed her with PTSD. Yes. You just disagreed with that. I said there was no evidence about that. Are we retrying this case? No, I am asking. You testified about PTSD on direct examination. That is, I am asking you. Please, Mr. Sharonis, next question. 
Then, in a testy cross-examination by Mr. Chironis, the judge finally called a halt to questioning about the Wesleyan case. Dr. Ziv, you just told Miss Aluzi and members of the jury that the young woman from the Virginia Wesleyan case had severe psychiatric disorder. Yes. You are aware in that case, a number of other medical providers said she had PTSD as it related to the rape she claimed. I'm aware of that. You met her one time, right? I met her one time, but I had records that documented her psychiatric history and all of her other history, educational history, social history, for months and months and years, actually. What did you diagnose that young woman with? Borderline personality disorder. Nobody else ever diagnosed her with that? Nobody else had done a comprehensive evaluation. The four-hour comprehensive and seeing her medical records. Objection. Sustained as to scope. Move on. And at that time, you made that evaluation. You were hired by the defense attorneys, right? Objection. Sustained. Move away from Virginia Wesleyan, please. Ms. Luzzi asked you some questions about individuals asking directed questions. Remember that? Objection. No, I don't. She asked you about interviews. Objection. Sustained. She asked you about secondary gain. You asked me about secondary gain. She didn't ask you about it. I don't recall. Objection. I was precluded from doing it. Sustained. So it remains to be seen just how convincing the jury will find um, Dr. Ziv. Um, after she left the witness box, then there was a, a very lengthy back and forth between the prosecution lawyers and the defense about the admissibility of actress Rosie Perez as a witness. Um, obviously, the prosecution really wanted her and the defense didn't. Yes. What eventually so, happened so in let's, Salem? Let's, well, let's remind people who Rosie Perez is. Uh, she is uh, Oscar-nominated, actually. Correct. Oscar-nominated actress. She was in... We believe she was in Do the Right Thing uh, in the opening scene. Uh, our sound engineer here, uh, who's up with everything. Up with uh, the young people. Up with the young people and all the celebrity <laughs> gossip that tells us. No, so she's, she's, and she's diminished. I mean, if you look her up online, you, everyone will recognize her. She's a very recognizable She was face. impressive in the witness box. She was small. She was diminutive. She was, uh, you know, feisty when she had to be. But mostly she answered the questions. Uh, you know, it wasn't a good witness for the defense. And actually, the whole argument was originally she wasn't allowed in, but According to the prosecution, the defense opened the door by challenging uh, Annabella Sciarro's credibility so then they could bring in this person who could then bolster the yes, credibility and exactly. the judge agreed with them. So it was kind of an own goal by the defense. But let's uh, hear But let's hear this. So first of all, we're going to hear from the prosecution questioning uh, Miss Perez about her relationship with um, Annabella Sciarro and about what, you know, what she remembered happening back in, in the in the 90s. So let's let's hear that again. We've got um, some actors playing the roles here, uh, but this is the words that were used in the in the court today. Directing your attention to a night that she was living in the Gramercy Park apartment and you called her to go out with you, but the conversation became odd. I have to direct her to a point. Overruled. Go ahead. Do you recall that moment? Yes, I do. Do you recall the day specifically or even the year specifically? I don't know the date, no, but I would say it was probably around 1993. Why did you call her on that particular evening? To hang out, to go to a nightclub, to have fun. And can you tell the jury, to the best of your recollection, what that conversation, how that conversation went? I called her up. I was in a pretty jovial mood. Hey, Annabella, what's up? Wonder if you want to hang out. And she was talking in this very strange whisper of a voice as if she was hiding from someone. 
I said, what's wrong with you? And she said, I think something bad happened. And I said, what do you mean something bad happened? What happened? And she said, I think I was raped. And the way she said it was so strange because she was still whispering. And she said, I think I was raped. And her voice started shaking. And I said, uh, do you think or did it happen? And she, she goes, I think it was rape. And she started crying and I said well who did it do you know who did it and she said I can't I can't I can't and I could hear her crying I said what happened and she said I woke up on the floor and my nightie was up and it was a family heirloom she started crying and said I can't I can't I gotta go I said wait Wait, wait, you have to go to the police. Are you okay? I can't, I can't. And she hung up the phone and I kept trying to call her back all night long. And I was so upset and she would not pick up the phone. Was Miss Yor's tone of voice different than her tone of voice was usually? Very, very, very different. It was very different. Now, Ms. Perez... Did you have an opportunity in these last few months of 1994 to have a conversation with Annabella Sciorra when she was in London? Yes or no? Yes. And at that time, after having your conversation initially with Ms. Sciorra, did it occur to you that you might know the identity of the person that Ms. Sciorra said raped her in the months before she went to London? Objection. Yes. Sustained as to the way you asked that question. Okay, I'll try again. How long after your initial conversation with Ms. Shiora, when she had that low voice and told you that she thinks something bad happened to her, that conversation, how long had it been between that conversation and the conversation that you had with her in London? It was several months later. Yeah, it was several months later. What did Ms. Shiora tell you this time about what happened to her those months before, or what happened to her the time she told you those months before happened to her in New York? Just tell us, please, what did she say about what happened to her in New York those months before? She told me that it was, in fact, Harvey Weinstein that raped her. She told me that he showed up at her door, and she was confused why he was there, standing there, and that he pushed his way through the door and she was crying and saying, I tried to fight back, I tried, I tried. And then she said that she ended up in the bedroom with her hands pinned over her head and that he raped her and then he pulled out and... You have to just say it. He came on her leg. And on her nightgown. And I said, oh, the family heirloom. And she was crying, and she said yes. And she swore to me never to tell anybody. And I told her that you should go to the police. Please go to the police. And she said, I can't. He's destroying me. He's going to destroy my career. Objection. Overruled. Next question. Have you remained friends with Miss Shiora since? Yes. 
So if you're enjoying this podcast, we would really appreciate your support. You can uh, donate at the unreportedstorysociety.com. Yes. And uh, we're dependent on your, the kindness of strangers to keep us on the road. Yes. We think that the people are really enjoying the podcast. So um, yeah. please help us out by going to the unreportedstorysociety.com and yeah. all your all your donations will be tax deductible. Yeah, we, we really appreciate that. This this is, is an expensive but important task we're doing and uh, we appreciate it all your help. So today, uh, you know, uh, in conclusion, you know, after that dialogue, I would say today wasn't a great day for the defense, but they did get a few wins uh, from prosecution witness Rosie Perez, you know. And I do think, you know, again, we talked about this over the last, you know, we've mentioned this a few times and it was mentioned um, by the defense that, you know, they're talking to the jury. The jury are, ma- you know, this is a jury of ordinary people. This mm-hmm. isn't a jury of experts. And so, you know, these ordinary people need to f- need to think that things are make sense. Things yes. just need to make sense. And I have to say, I, I thought this was a little bit of a win actually for the uh, defense because there was a there was an aspect of this Rosie Perez story that just did not make sense. So we're just going to we're going to hear that first, and then we we'll do a little talk about it afterwards. But I just think I think this was a little bit of a win in terms of common sense. So let's just hear that now, and then let's talk about it. So to be fair, when you called her and she said, I think I was raped, you didn't know if she was talking about something that just happened, did you? What do you mean? In other words, she didn't say, I think I was raped a week ago. She said, I think I was raped, right? She didn't give a timeline. So is it fair to say, in your mind, calling a friend to go out, she could have been talking about something that just occurred, right? I don't know. Well... She said, I think I was raped. She sounded, according to you, she was talking in a whisper, right? Yes. She sounded scared. Yes. She told you that she thinks she was raped, and then she woke up, and her heirloom nightgown was pulled up, right? Can you repeat that, please? Sure. When she whispered, she thought she was raped. She told you when she woke up, her heirloom nightgown was raised. Yes. Objection to the phrasing of that. Overruled. So again... You didn't know if that was something she was saying happened a long time ago or just that night, right? I don't know. It depends. Well, if one of your best friends calls you up and says, I think I was raped, and they sound scared, you yourself would have been nervous, right? You would have been worried for your friend. Yes. Objection. Speculation. It's not. Overruled. You would have been worried for your friend. I was worried for my friend. You didn't know if somebody had hurt her, correct? That is correct. You didn't know if she was injured at that time when she called you, right? Right. I assume she was. Okay. You didn't go over to her apartment, did you? No, because she would not pick up the phone. Well, your friend just told you that she thinks she was raped. Hangs up the phone. You did not go to check on her. Didn't go to the apartment. No. Did you call the police? She told me I told her you should call the police. She said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. So, when the phone is hung up, you are sitting there thinking my friend may have just been raped, correct? Yes. You said you called a couple of times. No, I was not thinking she may have been raped. I was thinking she was raped. Maybe that day. I don't know if it was that day. I did not say that. You didn't go over there? I didn't go over there because she would not pick up the phone, and I was very upset. I was very... Very shook myself. We covered you did not call the police or fire department, correct? She did not or I didn't. You didn't? No, I did not. 
anyone listening there, I mean, anyone listening there, mm-hmm. you think you think you've just you phone your you phone a dear friend, a dear friend, one like of your best friend. one of your best friends. The friend has this voice, like a terrified voice, says they've been raped. Obviously, it doesn't specify when, but it seems like it's obviously just happened yes. because of the fact that the voice has gone really low mm-hmm. and she'd met her previous to that and nothing had happened. So this is she's sounding totally different. Yeah. And you're in New York. She's in New York. Like you're just you're around, both, you're, and you're both from Brooklyn. And you're from Brooklyn. And you're, yeah, no, you're just actors. across town, by the way. Yes. This is New York. Everything. It's yes. so you know, it's easy to do things here. Yes. You know, in terms of getting from one place to another, you just jump a hop, a hop in a, a cab and stuff. And you know, the fact that she didn't move. You know that she didn't move. That she left yeah. her friend in this incredible state. And all you got to do, by the way, is okay. She didn't answer the phone, right? Here's what I would do: I jump in a cab. You just yes. jump in a cab, by the way. Just get over there, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, let me in." Well, let's talk. Go to the, or you or uh, you go to the doorman because there's a doorman in the building. Of course, as, that's as, right. As Harvey Weinstein's, Weinstein's lawyers pointed out uh, in yesterday's hearing, you know, he could not have got to the 17th floor without no, going past exactly. the doorman. So you go there and you get the doorman to phone up and say your friend's down here, shall I send her up? She didn't do that. And, you know, it's this lack of curiosity, this lack of action that... You know, and you think as well, I mean, somebody's voice sounds terrified, you know, and she's not answering the phone to you. You know, I I, I have to... I, I think most of us would phone the cops, by the way. And by the way, you know, it's not like... You know, yeah, this is when you do phone the cops, by the way. You phone the cops for something like this. You say, my friend has just been on the phone. She by sounds way, terrified. She's been attacked. Or you phone their mother or you phone their brother or you go, or you no, you go the, over, you yeah, go you over. you definitely listen, go, over. go over. I think you and, definitely go over. And, and if you by don't the way, go over that right, night, you go over the next night. And by the way, you're safe enough, by the way, because you are actually in a building where there is a doorman. You, see, yes. you go into the doorman, you say to the doorman, will you come up with me, by the way? I'm a bit scared. I think something's happened. Or by the way, do you know what? I'm going to stay here in the lobby. Yeah. Would you go up and check on her? Would you just do a just do a, a, a quick check, check that she's okay? So that, I have to say that was that last well for me. So, so basically, we came to the end of the day. Um, the jury were excused for the weekend. They were told again not to read anything. Don't read the newspapers. Don't discuss this case with anyone. And funny, we were standing on the street. I saw some of the jurors coming out. That's it. And I remember That's thinking, I remember thinking, you know, it's very challenging, by the way. It's, yes. I mean, it's really difficult. How do you keep your mouth shut? You know, when you're and how do you not read anything? Unless you're Dr. Ziv, who's got this amazing uh, transcendental ability to ignore everything that's going around. Well, by you. the way, she's not the only one, by the way, because actually Rosie Perez has also got that ability because they were, she was also asked today, she was asked, you know, um, did, you know, that Annabella Sciorra give evidence yesterday. Oh, she didn't know anything about that. She didn't That's know. Because right, their stories were remarkable. That's right. The, the defense, Damon Sciorra says, your stories, your, the story, your story and, and Annabella Sciorra's story, which from 27 years ago, are remarkably similar. Like yeah, they're startlingly you, yeah. similar. Did you, did you compare notes? She goes, you know, from her testimony yesterday. Oh, I didn't even know she was giving yeah, testimony yesterday. Yeah, I didn't even yesterday. know. So you're one know. of your best friends giving testimony in the Harvey Weinstein trial about her rape, uh, which you know something about, and she didn't tell you she was giving evidence. And she didn't see the news as well, by the way. She That's hadn't right. seen the news. So she, you know, so uh, unlike the rest of us, she's very disconnected. So there's a little bit of that on the prosecution side. You have a number of witnesses who seem to be very uh, living sort of basically, actually somehow in the 90s, actually, before the internet <laughs> right. kind of thing or the interwebs. But um, so, yeah, so, so, but as I said, yet. So the judge said, uh, admonished the jury and said, whatever you do, don't talk to anyone and don't be reading the newspapers and don't be looking at the news. Um, we, however, would say to you, you are not in that position. So please do share this podcast yes. with your friends. Please yes. do talk about the case um, and write to us. You can give us a rating. Obviously, we were recommending that you give us a five-star rating yes. and, and leave us a comment and be in touch. And again, if you could give us a donation, we would so appreciate yes. that at the unreportedstoriesociety.com and all, tax, all of your donations are tax deductible. Uh, we're going to be back next week um, starting Monday starting Monday it's I mean it's tough getting up at 5am and standing in the cold 
three or four hours. But I have to say, it's really worth it. It's, it's once it's you get into once you get into the courtroom, I have to say there isn't any difficulty with staying, um, you know, very focused because you know there aren't. It, 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 there is never a dull moment. Yeah, basically. well, it's the world's worst acoustics too. You can't. You have to stay focused because you can bear. Sometimes it's very difficult to That's make true. out what's saying, and you know and. I suppose, you know, there's not that much levity in there either. I think there was the biggest laugh today, actually the biggest laugh of the trial was when uh, he, um, the the defence attorney gave Rosie Perez a Ronan Farrow's book to read, to compare what she said there with what she said at, uh, at I think that's my phone, but, um, and Rosie Perez looks around the courtroom and says, does anybody have any reading glasses? Oh yeah, exactly. And again, <laughs> again, mentioning Ronan Farrow, as we said, as we said yesterday, yes. you know, it's a very interesting thing that the guy who kind of basically sort of started all of this is nowhere to be seen. He's not in the courtroom, uh, but he's given lots of uh, of interviews um, elsewhere and, and making his own podcasts and making and, his and own podcasts. The thing but, about and interviewing other people, but you know, it's different interviewing someone here in a podcast room. Uh, where there's n- you could n- there's no documents to cr- contradict them. There's no cross examination, and they don't have to produce any evidence. And there's no consequences to lying. I yeah. mean, if you're in a court of so, law, you're not you are required. Uh, this is to why tell the some truth. of these journalists don't like courts. This is why I like courts is because it forces people to only talk about evidence, not talk about emotions or spin stories. And but having said that, I think the prosecutions had a very good week. Uh, it started off bad. I think the opening day was bad for them. But since then, they've had a couple of really good days of uh, planting some pretty har- harrowing stories and images in the jury's mind that yeah. they'll find hard to shake off. And but I it's going to be a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and uh, you know, we can report that that Harvey Weinstein looks as bad as the images that you're seeing when you uh, when you see this Funny, on the television actually, today. Very interesting. I'm sure you saw it. You know, when he first came in the first day, he looked very tired and droopy and down you know the, the, the but boy was he paying attention yesterday and today yeah, yeah. like today he was he was studying super focused studying and he's his writing lawyer, notes and by the way head was that's right and he's and writing forth. notes all the time like yeah. so he's fru- furiously writing particularly yesterday with Annabella Sciorra he was yeah. she was he he wrote continuously and when they asked her actually I was I noticed that was really interesting when when they asked him you know they asked excuse me when they asked her to identify him in the court and she actually stood up dramatically yes. and pointed at him he actually I, I, I don't know if you spotted that he kind of lifted his hand a in a little kind of you know he lifted his hand off the table in a kind of a you know a salute to her yes. um, but she wasn't um, she was very she, you know she was very studiously avoiding um, looking at him and all yes. of that yeah. um, but anyway so we're, we're looking forward to next week and we're looking forward to continuing to to Bring fill you in you. on this and, and to tell you the story um, but again as I said please go on and on the podcast whatever podcast platform you're looking at this uh, you're listening to this and give us a five star rating please and leave, leave a comment um, and be in touch and don't forget to donate Thanks Thank so you. much. All the best. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is produced by Unreported Story Society and Magdalena Segeda and Raquel Lerman of Theatre Planners. Written and presented by Phelan McAleer and Anne McElaney. Directed by Kif Scholl. Joan Aluzi Orban is played by Michelle Gardner. Judge James Burke is played by Thomas Fasella. Rosie Perez is played by Lizzie Peet. Damon Sharonis is played by David Stanbra. And Dr. Barbara Ziv is played by Tina Van Berkelar. Edited by Mark Aramian. Engineered by Rob Ryder.